Welcome, welcome, welcome to Nodes in the Net, a weekly tangential irreverent conversation that caters to the interests of liminal trickster mystics like you, and like Jim Jewell, who is English faculty at North Seattle College. Uh, Jim joined us on Nodes today to talk about one of the projects uh, that he assigned for his English composition students this semester, uh, which was to read and react and write a lot of essays, it sounds like, uh, to the book by Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast, you've probably already checked out the Team Human book and podcast. Uh, but if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's a great read on the nature of and the embedded messages within our media ecosystem and, you know, general social constructs and ways of life. It's a deconstructive masterpiece. Uh, but Jim uh, shared some of his original thoughts on it and described, uh, you know, the relationship that his students have with a uh, apparent <laughs> Luddite like Douglas Rushkoff, uh, which I don't think is totally fair. I mean, Rushkoff was one of the first people, sort of ravey, hackery movement of early adopters of technology in the first place. So how could he be a Luddite? But uh, it's an interesting perspective that Jim was able to share about Doug from the students in this class, you know, these Gen Z people who are true technological natives. Uh, or what are they called? Web natives, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but you're going to love the conversation. Uh, Jim was extraordinarily prepared, extremely well-spoken. And to be quite honest, he taught me a lot. He's got this college teacher thing down pretty fucking pat. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to get right to that. Before we do, I wanted to read a little bit of the essay I wrote this week. Uh, which is about a dumpster fire that happened for me on Memorial Day. You can read the full essay at creekmasons.substack.com, uh, where you can find all of my essays from now on. <laughs> and, of course, Nodes in the Net is a Creek Mason podcast, and Nodes in the Net is still going to live at creekmasons.com for now. Uh, but you can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at Creek Masons and at Nodes in the Net. When shit hits the fan, people self-select into useful jobs they don't see everyone else doing, and everyone pulls their weight. In the background of this picture of me attacking the fire with an extinguisher, one of my neighbors is flagging down the firefighters and sending them into our hard-to-find alley. In the background, getting none of the credit they deserve, there are people knocking on the doors of the eight homes that could possibly be affected. There are moms comforting their sobbing children a safe distance away from the building. There are neighbors gathering buckets of water which came in handy later. During my first attempt with the extinguisher, the smoke got so bad I couldn't breathe well enough to put out the fire fully. I left telling my neighbor I was positive it would catch again. I grabbed an N95 from my house, and in the time it took me to find it, a man I had never seen before had somehow used his heavy jacket as an oven mitt and pulled the once again flaming dumpster away from everything and anything that might catch fire. I am fairly convinced that man was the tow truck driver I saw around the corner on my way to put the fire out in the first place. Zero investment in the outcome, and yet he braved that horrible smelling smoke and the scalding metal to help save our homes. 
I went to bed with a sore throat and an ugly cough. I can't imagine how bad it was for that mysterious stranger. And that is human nature. If you look around at the culture war, at politics, at isms and phobias of every variety, what you probably see looks a little like a dumpster fire. But the message of A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit, which you have to read, is that when push comes to shove, we have each other's backs. In the event of a civil war, climate apocalypse, or AI uprising, or whatever form of climactic judgment you personally subscribe to, we will work together. We will ultimately overcome. Hello, professor. <laughs> well, technically not professor because I work at a community college, so I'm an instructor, but <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Jim then, Jim Jewell, right? Uh, and Correct, you, yes. uh, you mentioned, actually, I thought it was kind of cool that you wanted to link uh, the the uh, community college website as as like the thing to plug uh, for because I'm I'm personally I'm a community college alumni. I went to uh, one over here in the Bay Area, and it was just. I guess I missed out on being in a dorm, but other than that, like it was, um, I think a much better and and uh, more financially savvy, <laughs> I guess, decision than going to a state school and spending all that money on loans and stuff. Uh, so I'm infinitely well, from the perspective grateful. of a teacher. Excellent. For perspective of a teacher, I always wanted to be at a community college because more of the focus is on teaching. I don't have to worry yeah. about getting published, though I occasionally do, but that's not my, my goal. My focus is always teaching here. And the community colleges are kind of under assault right now. We are, we're not doing well. There was just recently an AP story that ran across the country with the headline, uh, you know, the uh, community colleges, uh, was it community colleges in crisis, reckoning is here. Uh, that was ridiculously slanted against community colleges, mm. <laughs> kind of laying a lot of our issues at our feet as opposed to the system within which we work. So yeah, I just, I support the community college mission. Even if I didn't work here, I would support it as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I can, I can see from like a teacher's perspective, it's not publish or perish, but also like from the student's perspective, it's not like uh, Greek life or whatever it was <laughs> that people who were going to the state schools were engaged in, you know, I, I definitely felt cause I did the first two at a community college and then the second two at SF mm -hmm. state. And I definitely felt like there was more of an attitude, especially with the, like, I don't know, like unconventional students or whatever they're called. There's more of an attitude of like, I am here because I am actually interested in like bettering myself and, uh, and like learning, you know, and getting the most out of this experience that I can in terms of like rounding myself out as a person and, and, right. you know, going through that. 
And the remarkable uh, diversity you get in the classroom, just in terms of, you know, it's, it's different from a four-year school, age being just one of the many things. I, the biggest gap I've had between youngest and oldest student in the classroom is 50 years. I had yeah. a 15-year-old uh, uh, international student from Indonesia who was still completing high school classes while taking college classes, and then a 65-year-old who was doing mm. some worker retraining. Yeah. And you're teaching them uh, the Team Human Manifesto, which yeah. <laughs> like, I think uh, crosses generations in terms of its uh, applicability and relevance, for sure. Uh, that was definitely my feeling going in and why I wanted to assign it. And uh, it was definitely not the experience I had after teaching it for two quarters. <laughs> oh, no, really? So uh, I know uh, we we hang out a bit in the Team Human Discord. So I've seen some of the reactions that students have uh, given. But I one of the things that I've always wondered uh, when I've been hearing like sort of maybe the um, lukewarm reception uh, that you sometimes describe is whether like that's just the squeakiest wheels, you know, getting the most oil or whatever. Or, and there's like actually people who are really connecting with it. There's definitely always also people really connecting with it. And the students who dislike the text are definitely the loudest. But um, the very first time I taught at North Seattle College, the, uh, the first class I taught, I assigned Program or Be Programmed, one of mm. Douglas's earlier books. And in both cases, it's not just the material, but the structure of the book works really well in the, the kind of classes I teach. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of the same there. There was a little bit of resistance, but generally people kind of accepted it. So I thought in bringing it back that I would see that same kind of balance, a little resistance, but generally people really uh, aligning with it. Uh, but I found well over half of my students this time were highly resistant to the majority of, of the book. And it was a generational difference. My older and returning students were much more likely to have a favorable reaction to the, the text. And I have a lot of students who are in what we call in Washington State running start, who are taking doing dual mm -hmm. enrollment, high school and college. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the group who disliked the book most and most vociferously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, uh, those, I guess they're Gen Z kids have got a lot of opinions, right? And Absolutely. I mean, is, is it just the thoroughness of the uh, tech overlord brainwashing? Or what do you what do you what what is the feedback that you're getting? So I think there's all, uh, several things going on with the, those young younger reactions. Uh, one is definitely generational. Like they, there's you know, my my kid is Gen Z as well, and so I see a lot of mm. resistance to ideas coming from an older generation that has put them in a terrible position. Um, so as soon yeah. as it comes from an older person, right away, there's some resistance there, and and a willingness to to question what they're given more than, than my generation was encouraged at, at the same age. There's also the situational thing of them having just come out of, you know, a couple of years of pandemic affected education. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was surprising and, I, and it shouldn't have been was I saw more effect of pandemic education this year than I saw last year. And it's mm. because they had more of their foundation pre-college had been interrupted and had been, yeah really, you know, basically not efficient education, you know, education that had, had let a lot of, the, of its actual goals slide to the side. So they hadn't really, a lot of my students hadn't been challenged just because of the situation of the last few years of pand pandemic schooling and have this, you know, sort of automatic resistance to uh, the old, old folks telling them yeah. what to think. But I think especially that's an age where 
they're digital natives. Um, they very much consider themselves like owners of the technology. A lot of them probably spend their time explaining technology to their parents and grandparents on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. So when Douglas comes along and is critiquing something that is so central to their lives, they just can't really handle it. Um, and, and they tend to, uh, as a result, overread what some of the claims that are, are, are being made. Like if there's mm. a correlation being seen between the rise in social media use and rise of ADHD, which Douglas is presenting as a correlation because yeah. they use so, so much social media and a lot of them are on ADHD medication. <laughs> uh, they actually take it as sort of an attack on them and as though a, a causal relationship is being put there. And they want to mm. say like, no, it's not my social media that has made me ADHD. This is just who I am. And yeah. I think each of the two times I've taught it, it becomes most apparent like where a lot of the resistance comes from when you get to the chapter on economics and all the resistance goes away. <laughs> the most uh, vociferous <laughs> and angriest of my students who just have gotten to the point where they've started to be angry at Douglas as a person because they don't like his book. They get to <laughs> economics and go, oh, yes, now I agree with you. You're right. Capitalism <laughs> is the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, so the, I mean, one of the things that you, that you said that like stuck out to me is that this generation has like migrated online and it's, it's not only that the Gen Z kids are spending all of their free time online, but that their like actual class cohort mm -hmm. has been an online experience throughout the pandemic for a couple of years now, or I guess, you know, recently for a couple of years now. Um, and then, so what that, what that brings up for me is uh, it's this book generations, uh, which I think is by Levi Strauss, but I might be getting the author wrong. Um, but the the book, I think the premise is, uh, I actually haven't read it, so maybe I shouldn't reference it at all. But <laughs> the you know the like second or third hand reference that I've gotten uh, of it from podcasts is that the premise is like when uh, the baby boomers were first like acculturated in schools. Uh, the size of the population was so large that for the first time, uh, and this is like, you know, the fifties or the forties or whatever, for the first time, there were so many kids that it was most convenient to peer them with students who were roughly the same age as them, instead of having like a single classroom for all the kids in town or whatever, it was, you know, these suburban, like, uh, kid communities. And so like the, the uh, argument, I guess, is that the civil rights revolution of the sixties was partly, I think this might've been a century of the self uh, thing as well. The civil rights movement was partly in like the hippies were partly a youth culture, a, a counterculture that was created amongst children who were hanging out with each other and not, having so much direct influence from the adults in their life. And so they were creating like kind of an alliance of kids against, you know, the don't trust people over 30 crowd. Right. And so now one of the observations that I've been making, especially like on TikTok, which I've gotten really into, um, like I, I, it's the last thing I do every night. <laughs> Me and my wife watch a little bit of TikTok before we go to bed. And like, there's a there's a whole culture of 
you know, vocabulary and issues and yes, like late stage capitalism criticism uh, that exists there that it seems to me is kind of an amplification of the same process of institutions not being ready for the baby boomers. So they, they like, you know, were feral and kind of uh, organized their, themselves into their own peer groups. And then we, we've kind of got the same thing going on where an entire generation just had no choice but to literally be online like 24 hours a day. And so now they've developed their own uh, counterculture that is maybe again in a sort of resurgent way, resistant to the ideas of old people, <laughs> like you're saying. Well, I think part of it is just a function of the age that they are. Like every time that we talk about those mm-hmm. movements, we talk about them as youth movements. And I think it's because once you're out of institutionalized schooling for a decade, suddenly your friends are not just within a couple of years of you. They're within 10 or 15 years of you in either direction. So you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you no longer locked into those, that age segregation once you leave institutionalized schooling, but you don't even realize the effects of it when that is all that you have, have known. Uh, there was a lot of like a lot of what I was trying to do in the, the class last quarter was I'm not questioning the interpretation that a student has put forward, but offer that there are other ones available. Just like consider Mm. that, you know, to broaden your perspective. And they really weren't yet able to see that. Like a lot of it was because everyone around me is very similar to me and thinks similarly. uh, When I read this, I just go with, we all have one interpretation of the text. And now I'm going to argue with that interpretation and think that I'm doing analysis but you're mm. really not when you're only arguing with your interpretation of what someone says, yeah. as opposed to the entire world of the different things they can be interpreted to have said, and even what their intended purpose might have been. But they're still really locked into at that point because of that age segregation and, and the additional segregation of the pandemic into only being able to react and then respond to the reaction, but not really get beyond to see those all those other potential interpretations as yeah. well. Yeah, well, I remember that super well. Uh, I like one of the themes of my first acid trip was <laughs> was the uh, the nature of like subjectivity and the subjective nature of reality. I it was like the first time I was, you know, maybe just freshly adult, quote unquote, and uh, I I was realizing that the other people that I was tripping with were not having the same trip as me, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> Like, you know, acid is kind of like a checkpoint. So things are very different before and after. And so I I couldn't tell you for sure whether this was something that I was thinking a lot about before that. But since then, I've been obsessed with the fact that I, I, I was so mystified that my experience was not the universal experience, I guess. Right. It's the, that, that theory of mine that we, it's a stage we go through really early, but until we have a chance to reflect on what that actually means later in our lives, it doesn't fully take effect. Like babies understand that, you know, people exist even when they're not seen at some point. That's like that first step of theory of mind. Yeah. You, might, you really need to get some time where you can reflect on what that means before you're able to fully, to fully accept it, understand all the implications of that. Yeah, right, right. And so the I, I guess the the technological criticism and you know the reaction is is more or less it's doing all these good things and 
you know, and so we should not be so skeptical of it or uh, like, I understand what you're saying. They, they live online. And so they, you know, it's an aspect of your identity. And when it's an aspect of your identity, it becomes kind of a cornerstone of your values. And if you attack someone's identity, they are going to become very defensive. Um, But is, is there, I guess that's the reaction. What's the, how are they like verbalizing it? What's the argument? The argument is often is it's just based on flattening out Rushkoff's argument. It really becomes technology bad, uh, which mm. is not his argument at all. And which you know the, the latter third of Team Human makes really clear. Unfortunately, students had because of the pace we went through the book, which I think was definitely one of my missteps. We, we went through it pretty slowly, and I kind of wish we had gone through quickly once and then taken a second pass through, because by the time that they heard him saying. It's not about technology. It's about the ways that we're using it. It's about our relation to it. They'd already kind of built up this, this, this overall resistance to that point in time. So it became like, this guy is just thinks all technology is bad. And like, but does he really, is that really all that he is saying? Or is there another way to look at? They just weren't willing to engage. And I think it's because, and this is the nature of a manifesto. And that was actually something we started the quarter with, like knowing that you're reading something that is described as a manifesto what does that mean? How does that prepare you to understand this this text and, uh, and sort of framing your potential understanding? But yeah. it is built on generalizations. It is making a lot of generalizations that they would respond to with some specific personal example. And I would want to say like, yeah, exactly. That can still be true. That's why it's called a generalization. Generalizations <laughs> are not universal truths. It's something different. Yeah. But the majority of my students were not comfortable operating at that level. So it'd be, I'm giving you something mm-hmm. that could be, there's a general statement of that I think is true. And you respond with a specific example from your life that says it's not true. And because this is abstract to you, but this other thing is concrete, you mm-hmm. can't possibly see them in conversation with each other. It's really just one is true and the other is not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I uh, have recently uh, been encountering some of the same uh, resistance in myself to uh, the writing of like, or or I guess the podcasting or, you know, whatever. I guess, yeah, most recently Survival of the Richest. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was like really starting to dig into that book. And I've been a really big fan of like Charles Eisenstein since the pandemic as well. Uh, it's another person who I'd, I would kind of put into this category of like Luddite, but not really Luddite, you know? Um, and the instinct that I've been having is that, you know, perhaps the necessity to summarize, you know, the complex reality, which is like very, you know, in truth, phenomenological it's it's like i mispronounced that but <laughs> uh i'm not gonna do better but the <laughs> the the truth of of um you know reality itself the objective things that are out there is that they can't be summarized into you know maxims and truisms and and you know whatever else like maybe the project of writing a manifesto that tracks trends and that uh, that tries to, you know, say this is the way things are is, it, I mean, in the same way, 
I guess let me let me gather my words here a little bit because I think what I what I'm trying to highlight is that this is a problem that scientific materialists uh, deal with. I think mm-hmm. where uh, if you're talking about you know dietary science, you know nutritional science, uh, for example, there's going to be, you know, 50% of people who lose a bunch of weight when they try a, a zero sugar diet. And there's going to be 50% of people who lose a bunch of weight when they try a zero fat diet. And, you know, the uh, conveyors or the translators of the these studies tend to make claims like, you know, oh, well, everybody should be keto or whatever, you know, everybody should be paleo or, you know, a- any of these things. When the reality is that the best that we can do, especially with like a super complex organism like a human, or I guess in in the case of like, you know, expanding it, the metaphor outward to team human, the the super complex super organism of all humans interacting and exchanging ideas in, you know, the economy and in civilization, uh, things are are so complicated and so unique that it's really uh, a deception to even apply the same label to two different people because in reality, you know, there's, there's just, there's too much complexity uh, for that to work. Yeah. I like the way that you started the, uh, talk about that. Like the, the project of simplification is maybe a, the flawed project because that does, it's something that team human talks about with, you know, our need for answers and, and resolution. And part of that being because of our relationship with the, the digital media environment that in, in the way that we have taken on some of the, the characteristics of it, it's something my, a few of my students actually were able to recognize when we got to that chapter uh, that, oh my gosh, I'm trying to binary this book, which yeah. is exactly the influence he's talking about it having on me. But it, but it's true that like the complexity of human existence, I mean, and this might be, again, one of the core ideas that comes out of Team Human, can't be actually translated into that binary mm. or simplified uh, world. And it's interesting. It's been, I, I, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned uh, health science as one of the areas of this, because I think there's another influence that led all of my students to take kind of the the posture that they did with Team Human, which has been the the rise of the debunking podcasts. Uh, yeah. And I, I just a couple, of, I, I thought about this when you mentioned that you have a community college background and we're on a podcast. Uh, a couple of weeks <laughs> ago for an event on campus, I had an opportunity to interview uh, Michael Hobbs, who was uh, the co-creator of You're Wrong About, uh, moved away, uh, left that show and now hosts uh, Maintenance Phase with Aubrey Gordon. And if books could kill with, uh, I think it's Peter Samshiri, but uh, both uh, if books could kill and uh, maintenance phase are a lot about debunking these simplified narratives that when you look at the science behind them, either the science, the story is much more complex than what is being uh, being given to you or is horrifically flawed. And those flaws have been lost in that simplification. Yeah. And I think all of those books that, you know, that this is especially true right around the, the you know, the, the early aughts. Uh, and I was, I very much fell into the trap of things like uh, the Malcolm Gladwell books were ways to take like the complexity of the world around us yeah. and give us like, here, there's this one simple way to understand all of it. Right. Yeah. And they were all comforting and they're mm-hmm. all failed. <laughs> in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm also thinking uh, like the better of a- better angels of our nature by Steven Pinker or mm-hmm. like anything by Yuval Noah Harari, like these like super history type books. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, Malcolm Gladwell, like the tipping point is a really good example too. Like definitely all of these authors and like the nice thing ab- about, uh, you know, Charles Eisenstein and Douglas Rushkoff is they do advocate for evolving beyond referential language, which I think is Mm -hmm. really at the core of the problem. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that we use the same word to refer to every different tree. I always use the example of trees because there's a tree like directly outside the window right behind my laptop. Uh, But the fact that we use the same word to refer to every tree implies that there's like an essence of tree that you can simplify, you know, the entire complex, you know, system of, of, nature (laughs) down to down to one word that can stand in for all things and it's nice that doug and charles are like you know advocate for that like um appreciation of of the squishiness Mm -hmm. um but at the same time uh, what do you think what do you think are they like are they a little bit maybe engaged in the um in the i guess the project of referring to things and defining things, making them finite with their definitions uh, just by writing books or. I definitely saw that being a response. A lot of my students had Uh, particularly um, use of analogies. They, they felt like the uh, analogies were used as proof, like the, the, the way that viruses and memes work, uh, where I mm-hmm. said, that seems more like an illustration to me. I'm like, no, he's trying to say that because viruses work this way, that that memes are work this way. Like these, and I think that relationship is, it's a fair one for them to make because of that relationship you're, that you're talking about. Like it, it, it does automatically in trying to illustrate an idea that does not have limits, you are putting limits on it that make it. Mm-hmm. Not a good illustration. They were definitely pushing back on that uh, quite a bit. Um, what I think my students struggle with, but what I, I think that Doug uh, gets very clearly, is the role of subjectivity in in engaging all of this as as a human being. Like, uh, the, I, I'm glad that you used tree because one of the the questions I it's like my back pocket question that comes up every quarter at some point, especially when we're talking about analysis. I'll just ask a class. Uh, what is the difference between a plant and a vegetable? Like, why yeah. do we call that a plant and that a vegetable? And it really comes down to, well, we eat one of them or there's some part of it that is edible to us. It's not about the right. thing, but our relationship to it. And I feel like that is an idea that I've I've seen. Like, mm. I, I came to Douglas's work originally with uh, Media Virus in 95. Mm. I first just moved to Seattle. I was checking out the library. It jumped off the shelf and changed my life. So I've been following these ideas for a long time, but I feel like that – that recognition of the subjectivity that he's bringing to it is always is something he's always aware of. It's something I'm always trying to get my students to be a little bit more aware of as well. And I also appreciate that he resists, even though it is potentially part of that project of simplifying in a way that I think is more of, I always tend to think more of, of, of framing. Um, another uh, a frustration that students had was how few answers he delivers in Team Human. Yeah. There's not a lot of, you should now go and do this. And while they found that frustrating, I actually find that liberating. I think that's one of the the strengths of the book, that he's not claiming to have the answers. He's Mm -hmm. trying to point out things that he sees as limitations in in our thinking. Uh, Another essay that I assigned quite a bit uh, by uh, Rebecca Solnit is called Abolish High School. Uh, And I keep assigning it because for similar reasons, my students 
just hate it and re- respond to it in interesting ways. But she <laughs> ends with saying, you know, I learned from doctors, you do not have to have a cure to diagnose a disease. Like I will tell them, uh, somebody could walk in this room right now with a piece of rebar sticking out of their shoulder. I don't know what to do, but I know there's a problem. And <laughs> that is an okay place to be. I don't need to have an answer all the time to be able to engage the question. Yeah. Yeah. What a great analogy. <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the performative aspect of teaching. You have to keep them engaged and surprise them sometimes. Just say something that they're not expecting so that you get their attention back. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, uh, I feel like a little bit, maybe I'm uh, acting as the stand-in for your students here. Um, uh, so you've got my attention <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, the uh, the other you know the other question that I wanted to ask about team human um, well let's before before I move on to that um, with like too abrupt of a gear shift I do want to like pick up on the thread of capitalism too mm-hmm. I thought that I thought that that was a really interesting point um, I think like you know Douglas Rushkoff is definitely a thought leader in in this regard like people. Um, serious people and popular people uh, look to him for ideas about, you know, what's wrong with capitalism. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, even just like watching TikTok, sometimes I'll th- see things that are plagiarized from him that are, you know, no one gives credit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do, you do see it all the time. Uh, and I wonder, I wonder why, I don't know. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Why is capitalism okay to create? Like, why Why is that not part of our identity or 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 something that um, we react to with with as much animosity or, or antagonism? I think it comes down to that that personal relationship with the thing that is being critiqued, and you know, this is partially this is going to be affected by the fact that I'm teaching at a community college as well. Uh, the majority of the students who are in my classroom are not the victors of capitalism. Um, yeah. you know, they are on the, the, the other side of it. Uh, and they're very aware of the financial struggles of just trying to be a student and trying to survive in the world. Like they, they can see intimately the negative effects of capitalism all around them. Um, but I think that it's, th- that is exactly the, the separation that I sometimes want them to make. Like capitalism isn't bad because it's affecting you it has these negative effects and it also has, has a negative effect on you is, yeah. is like, I want to both, and I think this is true of my teaching in general. I want to uh, recognize that personal reaction you're having and get you beyond it because it's great that they are able to, because of their personal experiences with the world around them, see the harmful effects of capitalism and they know that they're not getting all the benefits on it. I mean, we also, we live in Seattle. So Jeff Bezos yeah. is a particularly high profile figure for folks <laughs> here. So we have all kinds of reasons to like uh, bad examples of billionaireness around us as mm. well. So all that is built up for personal experience, but it's, it's about, about getting them beyond like I want to validate your personal experience and then get you beyond that personal experience and start to see how the rest of the, you know, the, the rest of the world is being affected or see it separate from your personal experience in that bigger context. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things that you said at the beginning was that the, um, I guess reception is, uh, you know, more or less not as, as, uh, reflective of like, 
you know, the world is changing for the better as, <laughs> as maybe we would hope as huge fans, both of us of, of right. Douglas Rushkoff. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if, if, if those ideas are catching on and, and there's, you know, the project that you, or I keep using that word project is feels kind of weird, like a Marxist or something, but the, uh, the objective, I guess, that you just stated for your own teaching, uh, which is to uh, help people understand how they are, you know, to kind of paraphrase the net of Indra, which is where the title of this podcast comes from, mm-hmm. uh, it, which I believe is like a, it's a, it's a Eastern concept. Uh, all of existence is a net and at the intersection of each fiber of the net, there's a little jewel and that's an individual consciousness. And mm-hmm. within each jewel, you can see a reflection of every other jewel and every jewel is connected to every other jewel by the fibers of this net. And so it's like, it's the concept of like inner being and, and kind of a, it, each jewel is a system. And also there's a system that connects each system. So mm-hmm. um, in that way, uh, the, the task that I think you've set yourself is to get people from like the system of individual, which I think is very popular right now, particularly, you know, around discussions of identity. And we've already been like dancing around that in our discussion today, like the, the concept of like identity and whether that's immutable or, uh, immune to outside influence and then there's also uh, what I would say is like something that you kind of graduate into, which is uh, an awareness of the net as a whole. And I love that you said, you know, validate the personal experience and also uh, develop a broader understanding of the way that all things are are connected. Am I mm-hmm. am I paraphrasing you? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Because once you actually, once you can balance those, once you can balance like the individual and the system and understand both those, like I am me, but I'm only me and part of this whole system, it offers the opportunity to be self-reflective in ways that if you're only individual focused, you just you never do. There's no need to when, when you're not being fully aware of that, that net you're a part of. Uh, there was a student a few years ago who uh, it took uh, my uh, my composition two class and then came back and took my intro to film class before he transferred to uh, Washington State University and he was going to be pursuing criminology, and he caught, mm-hmm. uh, found me on campus like the, a week before he left and said, after taking your two classes, if I believe anything really strongly, I automatically question it. <laughs> and that was the best thing a student yeah. could ever say to me because that's what comes from that awareness. Like I have this idea and it's okay to have this idea, but I should also question this idea and do both of those at once. Mm. And that really becomes, and I, this is something I've been uh, talking a lot about with Composition One students this quarter, that becomes a thing that generative AI is unable to do and why generative AI, mm. no matter how they make use of it, consistently produces bad writing <laughs> because it can't do that thing that I am like centering all of my pedagogy, all of the, like the ways that we think about analysis and, and interpretive reading is all based yeah. on that kind of balance that two things can be true at once and the technology can't handle that. Yeah. Paradox. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I mean, so, Hmm, the, I'm, I'm, I totally a hundred percent feel you on that. Like that, uh, 
you know, desirability, I guess, or, or that like beauty of, of realizing anytime that you are uh, believing something a little bit too strongly, your knee jerk reaction should be to uh, figure out like what you're missing and, and what ways you can question your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely want to like get to AI. Uh, But before we leave, uh, you know, team human, um, you know, one of the, things that Doug has been talking about a lot lately is denaturalizing power and Mm -hmm. inspiring agency, you know, this set of like four, you know, kind of uh, objectives that you can, that you can inspire in systems in order to, uh, you know, lift up society generally. My reaction to that is very frequently to that knee jerk, you know, uh, tendency of my own to like question everything the second that I get a little bit too swayed by it. My reaction to that is inaction, I guess. It's it's a kind of a feeling of uh, powerlessness or, you know, like when when you tear apart the institutions and the, um, you know, the like basic ways of understanding the world and you, you know, are starting to like wake up to the complexity of like, there is no full on truth. Everything is subjective and, and we should, you know, not necessarily be super zeroed in it. I mean, it makes revolution impossible. It makes change um, very difficult to justify to like, if if you are questioning everything as soon as you develop um, passion about it, I mean, what's the Yates poem? It's like the, the worst are full of passionate intensity and the best lack all conviction. Right. Um, But I wonder if that's another one of the, the paradoxes that to question, to constantly question does not mean that you can't be acting at the same time. And this is actually a criticism I run into partially just by being, uh, you know, I'm a, cis white male. I'm a Leo and I grew up in the Northeast, uh, in New York state. <laughs> so Seattle was not ready for me at all. It took me a long time to adjust my personality to be at all acceptable here. So I can definitely <laughs> rattle people's, uh, uh, feathers quite a bit. But I think that, you know, one thing that those who are closer to me or who understand me get is that I am constantly questioning what I'm thinking, but at any moment, if you ask what I think, I will tell you what I think confidently, because of that confident, that constant questioning, that the constant questioning can be also a source of, of power. Because if you are constantly questioning, you are constantly in a state of willingness to change. But yeah. you can have confidence with, uh, with, with where you're at as well. And I think that there are ways to denaturalize power because this is something I, I work a lot with my, my union uh, and faculty mm. as a whole, but especially faculty and community colleges are in a difficult position. And this idea of you know changing the register so as opposed to yes. how do we get 50 people to come out to a rally, it's more how do we create an ecosystem in our union where 500 people show up at a rally? I think we need to make that change. So I've been really paying attention to denaturalized power. And one of the things I've been advocating is whenever one a fellow faculty member refers to administration or a dean as our bosses, I say, oh, no, no. They are not our bosses. That is yeah. not the structure that we work in. Our only bosses, especially as tenured faculty, is our contract. If we follow mm. our contract, there's no one on campus that can fire us. 
So they're not our bosses and we shouldn't treat them like our bosses. We should mm. understand there's a different relationship here. And it means that when we work with staff, we have to understand their paradigm is entirely different, but we shouldn't get trapped into thinking of our union as just every other labor uh, 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 movement, but it's this particular one. And we don't have bosses. We have this more you know, level relationship with the administration. We're working side to side towards common yeah. goals. And if you start talking like that, it, you make all kinds of changes. You stop saying things like uh, they need to spend more of their budget on instruction. And it's, they need to spend more of our budget on instruction because it really is our budget. It's paid yeah. for by taxpayers and students, and it's all used to further education. If they don't spend it, they don't get to keep it. It's not There's no profit motive there. And if you start to talk about it as ours, suddenly you become more powerful. Because another person, I, I and I actually posed this to, to uh, uh, Douglas in one of the kibitz rooms, Eric Liu is another uh, writer I've used a lot in English 102 classes, especially um, uh, You're More Powerful Than You Think, which becomes a very practical guide to some of the same sort of uh, ideas that, that Doug's working with in, in a more abstract, uh, abstract way. And one of them is just, if you want to be more powerful, act more powerful. Hmm. And sometimes the way to do that is to shift all the language around power. And that becomes, that comes from denaturalizing it. But it does mean you're living in paradox. I tell my students, I don't want any of you to necessarily end up like me. It's an incredibly <laughs> taxing way to live, to constantly question everything. <laughs> but it works for me because I think it, it gets me into that, that, that balance spot where I, I feel I'm always, I can always grow. I can always change, but I'm not inactive as a result of the the reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I love that. I guess, uh, you know, it's again, the answer is embrace paradox, you know, yeah. be, be uncertain, but also be certain, you know, <laughs> I guess. Uh, uh, I just saw, uh, I was looking through my Instagram to find something that I had posted in the past and I came across, I had forgotten that I posted a screenshot of my copy of Team Human when I was preparing the class. And it was just a shot of a page with the phrase, weirdness is power underlined heavily. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love that. Weirdness is power. It's beautiful. Anytime that you can operate in paradox, you're going to be in a position of advantage over someone who has to have a concrete answer, um, because they're it's just the you are more accommodating of the of the world as it is, and they are stuck in their subjectivity. Wow, that's that's wonderful. I I can think of a couple people. I, I feel like who are maybe having a conversation through me with you right now, <laughs> uh, who uh, hopefully will uh, will listen to this and 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 really enjoy it. I, I'm I'm I know I am, <laughs> but let's let's shift gears. Let's talk about uh, Chat GPT. Um, so, I mean, already we've you know you I love that you broached the subject because it's one of the things that I'm like most passionate about right now. I'm I'm maybe a little bit more techno optimist about it than I have been about any technology in a really long time just because I'm like personally in my day job and you know in my in my writing career and you know a lot, a lot in a lot of ways I'm finding uses for it that are unblocking me and keeping me productive. Mm. You know without um, like I'll take writing as an example, since you are a composition teacher, like I definitely don't, I would never publish word for word, the things that chat GPT, uh, you know, right spits out. 
But um, if I, uh, you know, just like copy and paste a long Discord discourse directly into the chat box and then tell it to provide me with an outline of an essay that could come from that conversation, it uh, it's a lot easier to do that than to stare at a blank page mm-hmm. and overcome that like initial hurdle of like staining it with whatever marks I choose to make. And so like there are definitely obvious limitations to it as a writer, but there are also ways that it facilitates steps of the creative process that maybe are, I don't know, not necessary any more than, using a pen is more necessary than using a, a keyboard. Well, that use of it is interesting because it, it kicks something loose that has not come up before in all of the, my talking and thinking about AI and writing, which and I, I can't remember them uh, blanking on the name of the movie. It was, but Sean Connery was a re- reclusive writer. Uh, and this uh, young black kid starts coming to his house and I forget exactly what the relation, like why that started. Uh, but like some of the things were in it was like, uh, he like he had to bring him a fresh set of socks all the time and he wore them inside out because the seam and the inside of socks pinches your toes. Anyway, the point of it was he saw like the older writer sees all this potential talent in the younger writer and says like, here, start with this first line from my short story and just write. And that ends Mm. up being like, it becomes a narrative point. Like the, the, the story that results becomes a narrative point in the movie. But how is that? any different than what you just described. Like there's so many different tricks that we teach in creative writing classes in particular for getting mm. past the blank page. I don't see any reason why chat GPT can't be what gets you past the blank page as long as it's yeah. not product. I also teach a lot of English language learners. Uh, it used to be over half of my English one-on-one classes were uh, students who, for whom English was, was not their native language. Uh, I have no problem with a student who writes their entire essay and puts the entire thing in a chat GPT to fix the the grammar because yeah. it's not an important skill to me at all um, anymore. Yeah, certainly not. Yeah. It's all about like, it's a tool uh, and tools have always had good uses and negative uses. Uh, you know, the first time someone figured out that you could uh, attach a rock to a stick and use it to, you know, as a, <laughs> as a productive tool, they also turn around and bonk somebody over the head with it. So yeah. I feel like I, I've been kind of looking at AI the same way. I had a lot of initial concern because you know, plagiarism has always been a, an issue. Mm. It's something that we're, we're constantly finding different ways to, to, to work around, work past, and, and, and help students develop ethical understanding around. And this would be like, I, I think our first reaction was, well, this is a plagiarism tool on, on steroids. Um, but I think mm. if we can look at it just as a, a tool and start to separate out, like, so it's a tool and there's, and there's what we're doing. And those don't have to be entirely the same thing. Like, I do not have any interest in teaching how to use ChatGPT. It's just not my strength. So yeah. what I've I've been doing in, re- in response is more like, no, I'm going to shift entirely the opposite direction. How do I take my writing to, in my writing classes to focus much more on the human side? And we'll mm. talk a little bit about the, the acceptable and unacceptable ways to use that, that tool. Uh, use it to... Uh, to do the reading of an article for you, for example, I assigned a, a New York Times opinion piece for an essay this quarter, and it became very obvious that some students did not read the essay. They, they actually had ChatGPT summarize it for them, uh, 
Yeah. Because what ChatGPT doesn't distinguish is whether it should say what is contained in the hyperlinks or not. Mm. So they were constantly referring to things that this article said that it did not say. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. Like, I don't want to use it that way because that's yeah. not a good way to use a tool. Much like a hammer is not a good way to get your TV working again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But it does allow me. It's I found it kind of freeing, and I have colleagues who are are much more freaked out about it, and are you're trying to integrate AI into their class more, or are finding all these different ways to uh, to detect it. You know, using multiple search engines. Uh, we had a big discussion in our last development day about uh, syllabus statements for you know how we can tell students ahead of time what the AI policy is. And at the mm. end of that meeting, one of our art teachers said, "I want to stop talking about this." I feel like when we talk about this, we're actually part of the machine and we're humanists. Our depart, our division is humanities division. Like yeah. we, should, we should just be talking to our students about how much, if they had any idea how much we love them. I mean, that meeting ended in tears because everyone started to just think about how much we love teaching students. Mm. So I, I like keeping the awareness of, I keep playing with, with chat GPT and I, I kind of feel like you do. I'm not that worried about it. Uh, Michael Hobbs, the podcaster and writer I mentioned, when he was asked the same question, kind of was very similar. It's been helpful in researching, and I would never use it to write, and I think it's fine, and it will never take my job. Um, <laughs> I want to take all of it, though, and say, yeah, I want to remain, remain aware of that side and then steer us really hard into, okay, what are the things that we can do that it can't? And really, yeah. and say, that is going to be the essence of what I'm going to try to teach. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the, the technologists always love to give the example of automated teller machines. Uh, a lot of people thought that they would replace bank tellers. Uh, but what ended up happening, and, and maybe you've heard this before, but like when, when banks started installing ATMs into the outside of their branches, uh, what that made possible was real estate being much more lucrative for the bank branch. And so uh, instead of actually like reducing the number of bank tellers in existence, uh, the ATM caused more branches to be built in more locations, which required more human people on the inside to handle the sorts of you know, squishy human things that are, mm -hmm. are necessary as well from employees at a bank and, and the, the actual like face-to-face -face interactions and, and service and, and personality uh, were things that an ATM couldn't do. Mm -hmm. uh, but that I think it's the right, it's the right, you know, if you're, if you're uh, talking to a bunch of trainee bank tellers, I don't think that you would want to train them to behave more like ATMs, you know, like count the money faster or something, you know, you, you would want to train them on the soft skills that an ATM can accomplish. Yeah. And this so feels like something that, that Rushkoff is often talking about and that, that, that my art teacher colleague was talking about, which is that we, by our attention, sometimes give technology this impression of having much more power and influence than it actually does. Like, oh no, the ATM is going to eliminate tellers. No, human nature actually won out. Like the way the human system works led to a different outcome. In the around the topics of plagiarism, we would because we, we have this uh, sort of a unit of plagiarism that includes talking through these scenarios, so that we get into all the nuance and the, and the details. And one of them was really about 
about technology. And something I started doing with my students was asking them, do you think that plagiarism became more common when word processors became more common? Like I, and, mm. and I did my last few papers in, in high school on a typewriter and my first couple of papers in college on a word processor. I was like right at that, at that turn. Yeah. And they all say, yeah, of course it did. It was, you know, if you had a word processor plus the internet, it must've made uh, plagiarism much more common. And, mm. you know, reported cases have gone up. But then I went and talked to the tutors in our tutoring center, almost all of whom, well, all of whom have a master's degree or more. Many of them Mm -hmm. are retired. But I started to ask them, did you ever in your uh, educational career plagiarize? And they all said, yeah. But the way that they'd have to do it is you'd go to the library, go down into the stacks when you had like those, you know, the, 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 there's the big yeah. crank in the side of the shelves. You'd find yeah. an old literary journal and then actually be writing, hand copying information out of it. So you're automatically <laughs> paraphrasing and it was just harder to catch. Unless your mm. professor wrote that book, they're not going to recognize the text and there's no way to, yeah. to find it. So it was just like technology did not make plagiarism more common human beings had already figured that out, but we give so much power to like, oh, it must've been the tech that made us act that way. No, yeah. I think we've always been to some degree in control, but we constantly let the narrative of the control of the tech take over. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, and I mean, what's the, uh, what is the, is that a team human story uh, that he tells about? Uh, I think it's like, uh, Socrates, is this a team human story? The the like, I well, obviously it's not. It's like a possibly apocryphal Socrates myth, <laughs> but like the uh, the story is Socrates uh, providing a uh, speech, I guess, in uh, defense of not adopting written language, and. Uh, and the the king is like, you know, very pro written language, and Socrates is saying like, well, it's going to rot our brains, and you know, like the same sorts of arguments that people make about like television or the internet or whatever, and we're not going to have the ability to like remember things, and we're going to be more dependent on authority because we'll just check what's already been written, and you know, whatever, whatever. And in a lot of ways, Socrates was right. Uh, in a lot of ways, the king was also right. And it enabled, mm-hmm. I mean, without written language, we wouldn't have been able to evolve the civilization and culture that we have, uh, you know, sort of in the same way that without genes uh, that can mutate in mm-hmm. in their being copied, like complex social primates wouldn't have evolved. Um, but uh, is there a question in there? I don't know if there is. I saw you writing though. I've noticed now that you're, yeah. One of the things that I pulled, uh, I forget where I found this, but I ended up sharing it with, you know, it was probably a Boing Boing article that that pointed me to this, but uh, I shared it with my class last quarter, was an article that was lamenting the end of slide rules because of calculator starting. And, like, and it, it went into depth about like, these are the kind of skills that everyone is going to lose if we make this move. Yeah. And that's, it, it's a, that idea is a really interesting because we do that so consistently. It's a really interesting pairing with the other idea from team human that we're always, the masses are always one step behind the elites in actually yeah. having the power of these because who is it that is actually issuing those like, Oh no, it's going to do that warnings. 
I think those messages kind of on some level come from the elites who are also benefiting from it. And this is now I'm spitball. I'm going way further than I'd actually thought about this ahead of time. But for example, (laughs) there was a letter that just came out this week from a lot of uh, experts in AI basically saying, be warning, there's a lot of potential danger here. But if what Team Human says is true, that that we're always a step behind the elites, Shouldn't we always be suspicious of that messaging trying to keep us the one step behind? Yeah. Part of what Socrates is doing and saying no written language is making sure that the written language, which some people already have access to, doesn't get out to the masses and stays with just the the elites. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the danger, isn't it? With with chat GPT. I mean, even uh, even just in the filters that its programmers have. Uh, placed on its personality and on mm-hmm. on what sorts of tasks it's willing to engage in, um, I, I I don't have much doubt that if you are a, you know a huge multinational corporation who wants to uh, engage in some kind of propaganda campaign in support of you know PR for your product or whatever, that you can have an army of Chat GPT robots, mm-hmm. you know, storm Twitter and and manipulate public opinion in in ways that are not available perhaps to me even even though I'm like getting value out of using chat gpt for this task or the other uh I think that there are there's power involved in being the programmer you know in the mm-hmm. programmer be programmed uh I guess in chat gpt's terms it would be like train or be trained right, right. <laughs> Um, well, and you, this adds, though, that the um, infinite scalability of the corporation in the digital world on top of it, that you know, it's an ent- the entity that th- has no limit to how big it can get. I think there's only so much benefit that an individual can possibly accrue, but there's no limit to the benefit that a corporation can accrue because it can just keep getting bigger and bigger repositories. Yeah, right, right. Wow. I just looked at the time. We Do you have like a few more minutes to maybe I'll, uh, I'll draw that tarot card on the Creek oh, Mason server and we can figure out like kind of what. Oh, while uh, you're doing that, I want to share one other story that came yeah. up during development day about ChatGPT because all of us have different, you know, none of us wants our students using it, obviously, but some of the responses that are, are really illustrative of the problems. So it was, and it was a training that someone, I think that it, during the uh, AWP conference, so that someone was relaying that they had asked ChatGPT to write this essay, but specifically asked it to write it in AAVE, in, in African American Vernacular yeah. English. And first, ChatGPT Chat refused. And the wording was such that, like, as we're hearing the story told to us, everyone in the room is like, oh, wow, that's encouraging like no that would be inappropriate because it, it, it sounded like it was it was arguing against appropriation of a yeah. dialect that is not your own but then it goes on to say because actually standard english is considered more valuable and just oh dropped. fuck yeah exactly all oh, of no. these big value statements suddenly came out and to watch an entire room full of teachers go from oh really do <gasps> Oh no! It, it, yeah, it was, it was an ugly response. <laughs> yeah, the exact uh, facial gestures that I think I just made for sure. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, 
uh, bad data in, bad data out, I guess. And and also, I mean, it's it's pretty clear. And I talked about this a little bit on the last episode or an episode or two ago. Um, but it's pretty clear to me that the OpenAI creators have put more thought than, say, Mark Zuckerberg did when he was founding Facebook into creating a resilient product that it's would a damn handle low bar, it. but I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not move fast and break things, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, very low bar. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, the kind of like woke protocol that they gave it, which like I, I feel comforted by it's it's kind of like a it feels um, I don't know inoffensive to me or or maybe um, like not scary like the fact that it like will sometimes say like give me woke reasons for rejecting my requests uh, <laughs> makes me feel like okay well you know maybe the robots aren't gonna you know destroy the world or whatever um, but. I mean, the article that you just described is such a miss. And then there's also undoubtedly tons of times that, uh, you know, the model itself and the the ability to train language, uh, I guess, generative language processors or whatever they're called Mm -hmm. uh, in this way is not necessarily going to be tied to that ideology. And so there, there will be people who can use it to, you know, do all sorts of nefarious things, pretending to be people or appropriating cultures or, or, or doing whatever it's, I guess this is what I was going to say about Socrates. It's like, once a technology is invented, it's inevitable that it, I remember now I read this in uh, Technopoly by Neil Postman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, once a technology is invented, it's inevitable that it will be used for all of its good purposes and all of its, you know, bad purposes. It, mm-hmm. It's not a one thing or the other, you know, technology is good or bad. And it's, it's not also, it depends on how you use it. The, the true reality is that it's everything, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> it, it's all of those things to different people. And so it's impact on society is in some, all of, all of the good and all of the bad. Mm-hmm. I like that because it feels like a very holistic way of sort of trying to evaluate or even predict technology's impact is lean into to looking at it having having both. It's going to be ecumenical about what, which of its purposes are actually brought to fruition. Yeah, right. So, uh so the tarot card that we got is like one of the one of the more positive tarot cards in the deck. Uh this is the 10 of pentacles. <laughs> Uh, which it like in the foreground, you've got like kind of an old dude with like an elaborate blanket draped over him and some dogs kind of like looking up at him like lovingly, in my opinion. And then it as you move farther back, there's um, it's traditionally interpreted as a family, uh, like a man and a woman who mm-hmm. are also kind of well dressed in the uh, artwork of uh, of the Rider Waite deck. I guess I should say uh, it's Pamela Coleman Smith who drew it. Um, but so, and then there's like a little kid who's like peeking out, you know, as well. And there's mm-hmm. these nice columns and it just, it's a, it's a card that is about um, like a, achieving material success mm-hmm. and sort of like things, 
you know, the, it, I guess it's sort of from the perspective of this guy in the foreground who's facing away from us. Like he's got his family gathered around him. He's got his loving dogs. He's got his, you know, nice place that he's living. He's like well, well robed in, in his, you know, lavish adornments. And so it's kind of a surprising card to me for the conversation that we, uh, that we just had. I wonder what it might bring up for you. Uh, it actually brings up quite a bit. Uh, and this is something that I had to navigate a lot when I was working, when I was, uh, I was a, 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 a officer position in my union for, for a while, which is, uh, while I 100% believe that faculty should be compensated at a higher rate than they are right now, I'm fine. Um, I, I have a pretty simple lifestyle. Um, I live close to campus in a, in a, a smaller place. Uh, you know, I, I make enough money that I can get by and I can help pay for my kid's college and, and give her some you know, money for living expenses. Mm-hmm. Like I feel remarkably privileged. And, I, and all of that comes from a job that when I'm doing my job, I mean, there's times where, especially grading papers, I don't love every second of it, mm. but I don't think of it as work. Like it, it's not like clocking in, clocking out like other jobs have been. My, my, my daughter is fond of saying you were a teacher before you were a teacher. Um, <laughs> I have like, when it comes to like, I, I, my, my, my romantic life has been a shambles for a long time, but every other mm. aspect, I couldn't really ask for more. I'm in a job that uh, I find to be incredibly fulfilling and that pays me un- just enough to get by. It basically pays me enough so I don't have to to worry about money, yeah. especially with the simple lifestyle I have. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm close to campus. I have tenure, which means I can run my mouth off as much as I want uh, <laughs> because I will never, you know, be, I, I never punch down when I run my mouth off. I'm always punching up and I'm protected yeah. when I'm doing that. So yeah, I, I, I feel that that sort of, I have all of the material comforts I could ever want. There's, I'm sure other people would look at my life and say, dude, what are you talking about? Your car is old, your apartment's small and all that. But no, I, I am yeah. as comfortable as I could, I could possibly, uh, as I've ever wanted to be. And especially having a job that doesn't really feel like, like work. It doesn't mean that everything is good. Cause even I, I've opened up uh, another window so I could look at the image as well. And I, I appreciate how everyone is looking in a, in a different direction. Like there's still things oh, to yeah. figure out. There's still like, I'm definitely trying to figure out what my personal path forward is here in act three of my life, but material comforts, that's why I'm able to give a lot to my students or mm. do a lot on campus because I don't have a want for a lot of things. I'm not, I'm going to stay in this job until they carry me off campus toes up. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, I'm grateful to you for doing that. Uh, to be honest, I'm grateful to you for for coming here and sharing some of that like teacher energy with me. I I definitely feel like I I mean I got questions answered uh, about about the like the material of Team Human that have been really rattling around in my brain at least since like Survival of the Richest came out months ago, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even longer since I read Team Human like back in 2020 or whatever. So uh, this is it's abundantly clear, uh, that you're great at your job. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, the fact that it's, uh, you know, that you don't perceive it as work or whatever is unsurprising to me. There's, there's certainly a lot of heart in the way that you communicate these ideas. Uh, Uh, Even students who did not like my class will tend to say that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's, it would, I mean, it'd just be dishonest. I'm sure you know, it, 
they'd have to really have a vendetta against you for some reason. You're, you're fucking Luddite or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on Nodes in the Net. This is, this is the time flew by. Yeah, it did. I'm surprised I went by as quickly as it did. I was, I was nervous going in of like, can I actually be interesting for that amount of time? Like, cause if I teach an hour long class, I have yeah. it fully lined out before I walk in. <laughs> yeah. You, you had, uh, you had no problem keeping my interest. I'm sure the same will be true. We'll see on the discord. This will be coming out pretty soon, but, um, yeah. Thanks for inviting me and for having the space. This is a, a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And, uh, do you, I'm, I'm going to be putting the link up to your, uh, you know, your, your community college website. Is there anything else that you want to, uh, say before we sign off? The other thing I'll offer up is, uh, like the other things that I do at this campus that I think are really important is to try to keep, uh, arts and expression alive in some way when, uh, all of that, the funding for that kind of thing is being cut. And if I can find ways to do that, that can combine coursework all the better, um, it's, if yeah. I had had a specific page at the, on the North Seal College website that I could have said, you know, look here for all the results of trying to bring more art into all forms of, of education, I would do that. But I think that community colleges are a place that that is happening right now. Um, so I think, I think the last message I want out for people is don't sleep on your, your local community college. And it doesn't even, you don't even have to have a student in your family. Just find out what kind of things are going on there because it's probably something really interesting. Awesome. I might, I might do that right now. (laughs) Great. Yeah. I miss it. Uh, but thanks again. Thank you for becoming a node. I, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. it. I'll see you. I'll see you online. All right. Take care.